Hey everybody, welcome to the Apolog Podcast. This episode is brought to you by fetchclass.com. Teach and be taught in a video conference. Sign up for free, be a teacher and be taught. Go to fetchclass.com. Also, this podcast is now apolog.ca. So ignore all the other bookmarks and go to apolog.ca. Thank you very much. Also, please go to amazon.ca or amazon.com or amazon.co.uk. Shop online and help the show out. Also, one more thing. I have a Patreon campaign. If you want to go to patreon.com slash go make a pledge and go sign up and help out this show any way you want. Okay? Okay. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Apolog Podcast. I'm your host. I'm here with Kevin of Le Studio Channel in Nova Scotia. What part of Nova Scotia in? Uh, Halifax. Halifax. Very cool. Very cool. You basically are a fan of music and decided to research this recording studio based just north of Montreal called Le Studio. Mm-hmm. And you you kind of just went out on your own and started your own channel about it. And, and I find that kind of cool because I love self-starters. I love that sort of idea of, of starting something from nothing. So I know you're a huge Rush fan to begin with. But what was the whole what was the whole thing about getting this started? Where, where was the where was the f- spark? I think Probably I got bit by the Le Studio bug, we'll call it, when I first stepped foot on the property and toured it that day. It, it really, it started a few years ago when me and a couple friends who were named in the doc, documentary pieces um, were actually in Montreal and, and we decided to take um, a little, well, part of the trip was to go out to Morin Heights and actually see it in the forest, you know. Mm-hmm. And before that trip, I had, you know, made a bunch of phone calls to try and track down, you know, some way to get into it Um, because I didn't know what it was like. And, you know, and three, four years ago, there was really nothing online about it. There was really no hoopla, no, you know, there was there was really no one talking about it. So it kind of I just I knew it was out there. I knew reading some things online that it was abandoned and it had closed because I wanted to go see the studio thinking it was working, like operating still. Yeah. And that was what I had originally planned for us on this trip to Montreal to actually take a day and, and go see the working La Studio. Wouldn't that be awesome? Mm-hmm. But I ended up discovering it was abandoned. So, okay, that that opened up a whole new thing. And then that's how, in a nutshell, I just ended up tracking down the right person in the end that uh, could get me a person to go out there and... Uh, enter with with keys like real i guess legal keyed access and uh, and that's what we did so that was all sort of prepared before even 
getting in the car and driving to Montreal from here, that was known days in advance that that was set up. Mm-hmm. And then that's how we did it. When we, when we came to that day, when we were in Quebec, in Montreal, we, we met up with the, the person that was going to key us in, uh, brought them into our vehicle, picked them up downtown at the, at the uh, corporate building where they worked. Um, and he directed us, how to drive all the way out there right right to the site. So that's when it started, when we stepped out of the vehicle there. Um, it became a whole new thing. <laughs> yeah. And this was the owner of it, or was this the property manager? I'd say, well, no, it wasn't the owner. There, there, are, there were several partners that owned it. I ended up discovering there was sort of a, a group. And um, this was one of the fellows. His name was actually on the limited company that was holding the property, and and that's how I ended up finding he's the the fellow's a CEO of a very large unaffiliated like it has nothing to do with real estate I won't name the company or anything mm-hmm. but uh, a big a big wig in Montreal in his own right and and this fellow that what that came with us was one of his uh, personal assistants so okay. someone fairly low on the totem pole. <laughs> Now, we should give the listeners a little bit of backstory because I'm coming into this kind of knowing a lot of the history based of what Le Studio actually is. But uh, as as right. most of us know it, Le Studio was a recording studio that recorded hundreds and hundreds of albums. And it was one of the first Canadian on-location style recording studios. Very close to, right. um, say, if the Rolling Stones wanted to record, they would just go into a house and bring a truck and record in this house, you know, on location. And it was sort of Andre Perret sort of decided that he wanted, he was the actual person who went on location to record Give Peace a Chance. Right. In in the 60s, well, 70s, I guess early 70s. But what he d- decided was to open a recording studio and have this vision and and did you ever meet him in person? Not yet. Um, I, I don't want to get too far off track because we'll probably get to this later. But I have, in, in visiting the place, I have since, of course, had several conversations with him. I've probably spoken to him upwards of 10 to 12 hours now across wow. maybe six to eight phone calls. So we're kind of phone friends. He knows who I am. I know who he is. But we've never met face to face yet. No. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it must have been kind of strange to to sort of see, because basically all we really know about what this recording studio is, is there's like an April Wine video or a few, there's a few, there's some Rush videos based on the moving pictures era of, um, mm-hmm. that was another aspect to Andre Perry's profession is that he wanted to be, get into video. And the whole idea of you could go record at the studio and have a performance video taken and this is before concept videos. It's before the whole idea of what we can do to market ourselves. It was let's play live in a room. And that's essentially what videos were up until the earlier 80s that sort of turned in things a little bit more, um, I don't know, with the storylines and things like this. But the whole idea is you could see a performance video of a band recording in a studio. And I remember watching all those videos myself as a kid and going, wow, this place looks pretty darn cool like there's a lake and there's um you know just sort of it was very um eye-opening to me as a young you know 10 year old 11 year old to see how recording is done you know and and really did sort of set me off on a path of becoming a recording engineer and things like this so i think there's credit where credit's due of of that place and in general 
and I've met a few people who've actually gone there in its heyday to record and 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 it's 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 an amazing experience you know you take a canoe across a lake to uh to to go record it seems very serene and there's been a lot of copycat studios trying to recreate that feel and it never really quite got done and so it basically closed down when 2000 yeah it would have been approximately nine to ten years ago it hit rock bottom and went up for sale that last time Uh, it changed hands well twice after andre and his wife had it yeah yeah it uh it sort of went on its legacy went on after Andre and his wife let it go. As I said in the in the documentary, they basically let it go to a lot of the staff, and then of course uh, Spectra, uh, uh, the, the the sort of a Andre Andre refers to it as the um, the Montreal Jazz Festival is who bought it. But if you go behind, like that's just sort of an an overlapping term of of uh, really it was Spectra. And Videogram, the two sort of uh, audio video companies um, that were in Montreal, um, that of course Andre knew well, and so on. They sort of became the new parents and legal owners of of the studio, and took it from Andre, sort of as is, where is, and and he even left all the gold and platinum records on the walls. He just sort of stepped away, and of course he was in the background as an advisor and so on, and they respected his opinion, but you know he wasn't. Um, he wasn't part of the studio in a way that he was because it was Spectra and Audiogram that now owned it. Wow. And they were affiliated with the Montreal Jazz Festival in, in some way or ran it or were the management of it, from what I understand. Mm-hmm. And it was them who finally lost it. It, it just went beyond uh, their ability to, to keep it, I guess, financially above water. And then that's when they had to put the whole property up for sale, which are the listings I show in my, in the documentary of when it went up for sale as just sort of a, a carcass of a building with some scattered equipment in it. And then that's when this group or partnership of investors bought it with the rest of the property around the lake, I think up to 240 acres uh, and uh, planned to do something with La Studio and sort of turn the whole lake into cottage country. So mm-hmm. that was the second owner after Andre. So that's the the two hops that it, it it went through. And that's where it currently sits, by the way, with that partnership still. So okay. now the whole idea of it, well, the, when the, the Spectra company was audio video and, and, and Andre, he had group Andre Perry um, for a long time, which is, was his sort of production company. Because the hunger and ambition in that man is is incredible. It comes across quite quickly when you you do speak to him. He uh, he had so many irons and so many fires that uh, you know I think uh, just getting out of the you know hiding up out in the in the woods kind of uh, was sort of his next step was to get out of there because he just lived down the road as well. By the way, his yeah. his house was at the bend in the road. It was sort of that ranch style. There's like horses and barns and, you know, another lakeside property approximately, I'd say, I don't know, one kilometer down down the road from the La Studio property, maybe even less. Mm-hmm. And that's where he actually lived. So he lived next door to it. And uh, when he let it go, I think he also moved as well. So he he was sort of just moving on to another phase in his life and, and sort of just let it go out there at the lake. Um, mm-hmm. So that's the way I understood it anyway. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's how it how he stepped away. Yeah, he probably saw it coming down Main Street too about how recording studios and everything's getting so modular and smaller, 
And, and if we're talking early 2000s, it's the dawn of home recording systems on hard disks, on computers. So Yeah, the residential side of it, uh, I think, was getting a little more slim. You know, as I, as I point out, uh, you know, Rush recorded eight albums there, eight major albums uh, through a couple different sound eras when they s- sort of, of course, the what I call the sort of the wooden era where they sound really brown and wooden in, say, permanent waves and moving pictures. And then, of course, after that, it got a little more synthy and sciency and electronic with with signals and grace under pressure. But they ended up even after that. They 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 right up until counterparts. They were they were doing stuff there when they, you know, and the sound changes so much, album to album, that um, it it almost became where it was just the facility that was important, where the residency of of staying and living there at the lake and all of that, which was the big dream of Andre, of course, as you mentioned. I think that slowly faded away, where it was just sort of. It became a studio. They were probably more staying in in Montreal or maybe at a you know one of the the ski resorts or something. Who knows? I yeah. I don't know the specifics on that, but I know the residency part wasn't didn't have the allure that it did coming into the uh, say early '90s and so on yeah. as it did back when it first started. Of course. Um, so that I think that part faded away, and then it just became more of a, a an audio facility. But again. You know, like you were saying, technology moved on, and there was a certain point where Le Studio just didn't change. Um, they never went digital. They were always recording to two-inch tape right up until the end. Yeah, they had a you know they had digital mastering there. That was you know Andre's big kick was uh, their their mastering suite that they did have did have on site. So a lot of those uh, recordings um, that were mixed down were able to be mastered on something digital. But if you go back and look up all that equipment, I mean, it was it was ancient. It was literally mastering in digital on like VHS tapes. <laughs> now that may sound silly, but a VHS tape with a with a spinning helical head, not saving video data, but but uh, digital audio data, was um, was quite spectacular. I mean, you were getting mastering rates that would, you know rival well beyond like two, three, four times the resolution of what a, a compact disc would require anyway. So, yeah, yeah. you know, well beyond the, the, the analog mastering that was being done, you know, prior to that. So, you know, he was cutting edge up until that point, mm-hmm. but he, the studio never jumped to the multi-track digital tape machines mm-hmm. or, or, you know, and I don't think they even got as far as hard drive recording. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. At the end, that's what was sitting there was still those big Studer A800s with, with the two inch tape reels and uh, 24 tracks a piece. And, you know, they could slave them together and, and have them in sync and run up to 48 tracks together. But that's, that's two, that's four inches of tape, Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know, two, two inch tapes spinning to do your 48 track mix downs and so on. It was, and those machines have their own idiosyncrasies. They, oh, they yeah. can be a pain in the ass with having to be calibrated and, you know, and, and with stuff moving along, they just never made the step past that part. And and maybe that was just part of the whole vision and the sound of the place, but that, that was not passed at, at a certain point. So, well, yeah, things moved along fast in the late nineties into the early two thousands. So anyone who wasn't sort of on the brink, cause I guess sound tools came out in the early nineties, but I remember someone who owned one and it was four track recording and it was almost considered a toy and, and, and unworkable. 
in, in on, on a computer, you'd have to actually close down one of the applications, the edit window to open up the mix window. It was impossible to work with. But nevertheless, it was the change was in the air and things moved very drastically fast for personal computing, home recording systems from the late 90s into the early 2000s. And like I said, if you had a couple million dollars worth of tape machines, it's really hard to let that go based on what people are calling a fad at the time or, or, or this isn't going to be lived. Don't, don't worry about it. Everything's going to be fine. And that's sort of larger businesses too have that problem with turning the boat around too fast. And it's not always about equipment. Like there's, there's nothing wrong with having those big studers and, and sticking with two inch tape because I mean, you can watch, you can watch Foo Fighters today on their HBO show, the Sonic Highways show, and you can see at every location in every episode, um, they're doing everything to two-inch tape even today, at least for the bed tracks right now. You know, they may be working with um, mixing down digitally and mastering digitally and all that afterward, but they are definitely, you know, there's still that kick of of hitting tape, right? So it's not that the place was crippled by staying that way, but it may have... I know by the time it got into the hands of Spectra and Audiogram, they probably just didn't have the the cash flow to make the leap because yeah. the big artists weren't coming through like back in the old days. And they were lucky to get, say, Rush to show up with Kevin Shirley to do counterparts and engineer it, record it and engineer it there and, and leave and master it somewhere else. That might have been one of their biggest gigs or contracts, whatever you want to call it at that time. And then after that, you know, Rush never came back. And I think they were probably the biggest artists recording there at the time by the, you know, by the time we're looking at what, 1990, 91, 92. And I think it was just a downward spiral after that, because in order to make the leap and, and invest in that next tier of equipment that may have been required to attract the right producers and engineers and so on, I don't think they were able to either afford it or, you know, they just stuck with what they knew. And of course, Andre wasn't there then. Right. So then there's, there's no, there's no ship's captain sort of, you know, cracking the whip at what's the next. Cause he's the one I think who had all those visions to move it along because don't get me wrong. The place had beautiful equipment. I mean, you know, we can talk about two inch tape machines all long, all day long, but <laughs> yeah. you know, they had the cutting edge of everything up until sort of Andre stepped aside that he always stayed current. He always had the, you know, the, the synthesizers and synclavier rooms and the mastering systems. And of course they kept moving the, the board along through the different SSL models and ended up with that one that you can see in the, the real estate sheet pictures, which is they ended with a Jeep, uh, an SSL 4000 G plus, and plus all of the hundreds of microphones. And, you know, they had vintage microphones there that today are, you know, to just to buy them new, like some of the uh, the Sennheisers and 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 stuff like that. You know, they're even today they're like thirty five hundred to five thousand dollar microphones, and up the vintage ones today are like ten to twenty grand. You know, on the on the yeah. easy on the open market, right? <laughs> and these were the mics that they were using. Just you know, and it's funny because Paul Northfield discussing Rush recordings kind of joked at that a bit that the 
you know, the microphones they put around Neil Peart's drum set were, you know, each tom was mic'd by like a, a what's today, like, or even then, a, like a $5,000 microphone yeah, that you would never want to hit with a drumstick. Yeah. But he said, yeah, they, they sometimes got all the windscreens and stuff would be all dented and beat up from stick hits and abuse around the studio. They never seemed to worry about that because that was just the mics they used, right, at the time. And they had a few bucks in the bank. They could they could afford to replace yeah. that mic if they... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember reading about that too where they were talking about putting... Uh, there are some non-audio nerds that listen to it, but yeah, there are some what's called large diaphragm microphones which are incredibly huge for... would be used just for, like, voice. What they did for their Permanent Waves album is used all U87s on the toms, which are like, like you said, very expensive microphones. But then if you get into the Moving Pictures era, they kind of changed that up a little bit. I think probably for the reason of saying, uh, I, I, you know, uh, you've spent 10 grand on broken microphones, <laughs> even though you can fix them. You know what I mean? Like, it makes them so expensive, it makes them all obviously repairable. Let's let's talk a little bit about your documentaries because you are you're doing a documentary based on the history of what's considered the Canadian music industry, and I think that shouldn't go unnoticed. I mean, the fact that you've actually self-started something, and from what I understand, got some of your own money together and bought gear and cameras and start from the beginning. I mean, you're, you've said a little bit about your first trip to the studio with your I think it was with your camera phone or something, right? When we went, of course, we took our cameras and there was some just point and shoot little snap cameras that were maybe 4.2 megapixel, just little point and click cameras. We had a slightly nicer one with some lenses. And then as far for the video we took at the time, because, uh, of course, cameras moved along so quickly. I remember it was a an SD RAM based HD sort of a palm quarter. So it didn't have a tape in it or anything. And it was it just put it on an SD card like as you're recording it and made uh, like MPEG files or something, but it was HD. It was 1920 by 1080. <laughs> but of course the, the CCD, the actual, like the lens and the, and, and the, the, um, the sensor weren't the highest in quality. So it kind of looked like digital camcorder and it was technically HD, but it didn't have very good light sensitivity. So the gear we were there with was semi-limited. Um, but of course we were just sort of recording it, you know, with, with sort of our own personal keepsakes in mind. Um, and there was some vision of, okay, maybe we can put some of this footage up on YouTube and just kind of show a little bit of a walk around, but you know, it, it was, it was sort of just guerrilla recording and, and touring around the building slowly. We had a good four or five hours there. So it wasn't like, you know, I'd say the first hour we were just on foot and no cameras were, you know, we didn't take a picture of anything. We were just sort of ooing and eyeing, going room to room. And, uh, you know, after we left and, and when I got home, I was just, I sort of sat on it for a while and, and, and thought, well, you know, I, I can do something with this, uh, and, and make something from it and, and just sort of show everyone sort of the state of the nation with this place. Cause I don't think a lot of rush fans know. And, and it was all rush based in the beginning. It wasn't until I started talking to Andre more that I ended up realizing to him, the place, and of course, to him, it's not a rush place at all. I mean, to to me and to most of the audience tuning into the to the YouTube videos I've got up, it's it's mostly a rush audience because of that connection, because of the eight albums, and because of seeing the Moving Pictures era videos. There's that that that's always entrenched in the brain, right? And it was yeah. from my youth. 
you know, that that place was this magical place where Tom Sawyer was recorded, where, where Limelight was recorded and Vital Signs. Those three videos shot all in the same style with very slight differences in camera angles and some video effects. Um, it was just this neat picture of, of what it was like at the time there. And, and it, it, that stuck with me, especially that neon sign on the wall. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was the first thing we were, of course, looking for when we were in there is where's that damn sign, you know. <laughs> now, the place was gutted, and it sort of, we thought, well, it's probably not here. And, of course, we never even made it to that room till the very, very end because we had no idea the layout of the building. So, I mean, sure. we were kind of, we started at one end, and we were roaming around and going up and down stairs because there was a couple different sections that had lower levels. And we made our way all the way to the end until we opened that door, and there was the booth, and there was that big window. Mm-hmm looking into the room and it's like, oh, you know, <laughs> yeah. so we, we went through there and went in there. And of course, you know, the, that room has been sort of gutted be, in a way because all of the paneling has been taken down, which was very distinctive. All that uh, angled paneling that was on the wall. Um, I guess I wouldn't call it paneling. It's, it's, it was actually like, it's like wood floors on the walls. It was like, yeah, like pine. planking planks. Yeah. Yeah. And it was all very expensively done. And, you know, it was probably all for the acoustics and the bounce of the sound and all that stuff. All that was tore off the walls, just exposing the drywall underneath. And there was the spot where the sign hung and there was a neon uh, transformer bolted to the wall in this little indent and the wires were hanging down. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's how we sort of got the lay of the land and could get our bearings of what we were looking at. And as you look around the room, it finally all comes into into frame, you can see the windows and it all starts to make sense, especially when you get home and you start comparing it to historical pictures. And, and that's when I went on the rampage to sort of dig all this stuff up on and, and go Google crazy and just Google everything, you know, find every photo and angle and everything and just sort of assemble it all together. And so I, at least in my own mind, before even doing anything for online, get it all figured out of how it all looked now and then and, and understand what I had just seen. Yeah. So that's where it came from yeah. once I got home. It's always interesting when I, well, I can't remember the guy who put the first one up with the music or was the second one with the music, but I kept seeing that piano there and I'm going, is that, and I always thought it was until just like a week ago, I always thought it was the Bosendorfer, 96 keyed Bosendorfer, that like spirit of radio, the keyboard, the piano part at the end, like um, so many songs, and it's always in these shots. But turns out it was a Yamaha because I saw another picture of it uh, with this with the um, the cover off. And the it, cover. But it was mm-hmm. a Yamaha, right? Yeah, uh, it is. From what I understand, I never peeked in there to see the brand. It's um, gone now. And it is. I've heard that as well. Now, it's funny you mentioned Bosendorfer. Uh, there was there was someone who actually contacted me after episode one on the channel came out. It was fairly quick. There was a, a place out west. Um, it was a music, Canadian music museum of some sort. And forgive me for not knowing its name, and I forget the name of the fellow, but he he contacted me through YouTube first, and then we switched to telephone. And he was wondering who he could get in touch with, again, regarding the building, um, and who I spoke to. So I had to dig up all my old notes and numbers and mm-hmm. cause he wanted to speak to them to see if he could get, um, confirmation on if that piano was a Bosendorfer. The first time I've ever even heard that brand name. Yeah, I know nothing Austrian. about pianos. 
Okay. <laughs> and he thought it was a Bosendorfer as well. He was freaking out. It's like, oh my God, that, that piano must be saved and gotten out of there as soon as possible. And we want it. We want it out here. We want to put it in the museum. The number of musicians and songs that have been done on that piano is just Canadian music history. And that must not be let go. That can't just sit there and, and rot and get moldy in an unheated building in the winter and blah, blah, blah. He was just freaking out this, this amazing Bosendorfer piano that he thought was there. Yeah. And, uh, so I sent him in the right direction. He was going to make all his own calls and so on. And, and, and I never ended up hearing back from how he made out on that, but I betcha he found out it was a Yamaha. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And his mission probably kind of ended there. Although he may be the one that got it out of there and it may be in a museum out West right now or, or being restored for that. Yeah. I'm not, I'll have to find out who, who he was and, and, and getting back in touch to see how he made out on that. Cause that at this moment, that's peaking my mind right now that that even happened. Cause you're the second person that said the word Bosendorfer to me in yeah. the last couple of years. So that was interesting. I think I read the, the YouTube comment from that guy because he mentioned Bosendorfer. And then I started following it through as my own and realized that it was an, a Bosendorfer, but not just a regular Bosendorfer, but a 96 key. It has, it has extra keys. Like Normally, a piano has 88 keys. But this had an extra eight keys that were painted black and off to the far left side. So it's a very so unique... So they were bass keys. Yeah, very unique piano based on the fact that it has more keys than the average piano. And I've only seen one in person, and where I used to work at a place in Mississauga, Ontario, called Living Arts Center, had one donated to them with water damage, and it was still a $300,000 piano. <laughs> and uh, I see. Okay, so they're very valuable, Very is what valuable saying. and rare. And they're, they were, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe they were built in Austria, and they're very... Um, they're almost a better quality than Steinway's because they're more consistently a good piano because they built less of them, if that makes sense. Right. And they're very, you know, I mean, I spoke, because I, where I work, there's a piano tuner. I work in a university that's an arts facility, and we have our on-staff piano tuner, and I told him about this, and what he basically said was, if you try to tune that piano, it will basically kill you because the strings will break as you're trying to before you could actually get to it. And once a couple of strings break, the whole thing starts exploding and it actually be, it turns into a weapon. So um, whoever was going to take Yikes. that Bosendorfer would have to basically take all the strings, take them all off, completely tear it down into nothing, to wood, and then start from the beginning and rebuild it. And with that, you lose a lot of its charm and its character. You know, you're taking its essentially its soul away from it. But so it's essentially junk <laughs> is what I'm saying. It's well, yeah, it kind of explains probably why the piano sat there under a cover till probably within the last year. It, it's it's only recently I've it's been confirmed the piano's gone because it was there at least this time last year for sure because yeah. it was still in pictures people were posting from their visits. Yeah, the amount of visit videos and things sort of took off uh, about, well, after I wouldn't say it was because of me, but it was around the time I was putting together episode one, I was noticing there was sort of this, you know, Le Studio surgence of, of attention. It was getting with more people, you know, showing up and walking around and peeking in windows. See, they, not everyone had keyed access. Keyed access seemed very special at the time. And I was, mm -hmm. I felt so lucky to have had the access and, 
And and I had to pay the guy like the, his his day wasn't free to come with us. He, he was mm. he was hired because wow. you know it was the only way I could convince that particular partner in the partnership to let me have access to the building and send me out there with someone. As I said, I'll, I'll pay if that's what's necessary. And he said, okay, oh, wow. <laughs> I'll get you a guy that'll go with you for the day. So it was this day trip with this hired guy yeah. to key us in and watch us and stay with us and get us home. And cause he directed all the driving, what exits to take. And you know, yeah. Cause I had no idea where it was physically, you know, even with Google maps and stuff, never even was that smart to, to sort of plan it out myself. I, yeah. we literally relied on this guy. So yeah. Yeah, it's probably why the pianos uh, stayed up until a year ago. <laughs> it wasn't a $300,000 piano. Yeah. Well, there's there's a video came out, I think, early June. And they show this guy with a GoPro, and it has the GoPro Be a Hero logo at the start with the stupid GoPro music. But as he's going in, you can definitely tell that the door is off its jam, like it's been broken into. And as he's walking around, there's broken glass where you can see there's entry. Like people have actually broken windows to get through. Like there's an office, I guess, sort of, if you're looking at the building to the right, and it's got mm -hmm. a broken window. So I don't know who's, oh. who's there probably, hopefully, putting it all back together. But it could just be sitting there, and someone could have just basically stolen it, for all we know, that piano. It could be. It could be. It's quite a theft to, to move something that big and get it down the hill and into a pickup truck or something. It's sure. possible. It's yeah. just that uh, the building's getting so much attention now um, with the fans and stuff. And again, I don't want to take credit for... But a Take lot of it. people have started Come talking on. about it. You well, started the whole thing, man. I mean, honestly, in a way, it just it ended up that uh, the you know uh, there's a lot of people making pilgrimages out there now, right? Yeah. So there there are doors being bursted, and and I didn't wouldn't think anyone would want to smash glass to get in because there's easier ways to get in. But I, I did notice in that video that you're speaking of the GoPro walk around. Which is a great video, by the way, for an over overall view. I actually want to steal some some of the footage for episode three, but. Yeah. <laughs> um, there, I notice a door's open in the soundstage room. I bet you the door at the bottom going into that old kitchen lounge area downstairs is probably still fairly easy to jig open. Yeah. I think the door up by the old office, um, uh, the original in, at the end with the original part of the building is probably off its hinges as well. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's a big round hole where the round stained glass window used to be um, because that's gone. Oh, I think there's still glass. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, uh, I couldn't tell if there was, I've seen so many pictures of, but I can't tell if there's actually still a pane of glass left. Yeah. Uh, or if it's just a big round hole. I hope it's not a big round hole, but. Yeah. This is, this is how nerdy <laughs> I got about it. Cause I saw the first visit where it's the one guy with his, you could tell he's got some, like the first guy that did it, like where he, he goes around the back and almost falls in a sinkhole. That one. I don't know if, um, if you know the one I'm talking about. But the very I first, think so, yep. Yeah, and then... It was one of the very first ones when there was only, like, one or two videos of a walk around yes. outdoors, yeah. Yeah, so mm -hmm. then I would go and see where the tiles were, like, misplaced, or if a chair had moved, and I would try to see between the time what had actually been done to the place. Like, if there's anybody living there. It was so much mystery to me that I thought, maybe is there someone actually living? Is there a guy squatting in there? Would he be hiding in there right now, hearing people? You know what I mean? I thought it was just so... I right, got really right. intense with it, trying to figure out what actually has been was being done with it. And when I actually found the listing for, what is it, 1.6 million, I think that when, when it originally got sold, again, 
it got sold for considerably less or it was on the market for considerably less. And I thought for a second, like, man, I, who do I know that's rich? And who do I know that can put some money down or invest in this? And then I quickly thought, uh, no, that wouldn't happen. I don't think. And I'm sure there's a Kickstarter fund trying to pay the whatever, the $18,000, which was a total hoax anyways, for the property taxes. Right. But that that was your last update, wasn't it? Saying that the place actually... Yeah, that's done and gone. It was sort of, it, it came and went fairly quickly. I, I bet you the owning partners that had that debt uh, sort of jumped on it quicker than they normally do. Normally they left, like in years past, they've, they've gone right up until the day of the auction and they've just gone and settled it that morning before it even hits the block. Crazy. You know, the auctioneer's ready and there's whatever properties are up for tax sale and, and they just go in and... and, and eliminate it from from jeopardy yeah. literally on the last day <laughs> that's yeah. been their that's been their mode but with all the press this time they're probably a little embarrassed seeing that up uh, being in all these papers and and all these uh tv interviews and so on going on about their property right it being up for tax sales probably a little embarrassing for the partners so yeah. Yeah. they must have went in and they snuffed it out well they had it done by it was the day before I put up my update video, so and it, the story went national on the eighth of the ninth. I think it was only a span of what three, four days before they went in and paid it. So yeah. that was a quick reaction, and that's probably why. Yeah. But it'll happen again next year. I have no doubt that. Uh, what do you think your theory is about the place? What do you think they're going to do? Do you think they're going to turn it into an actual, like a housing development? Or are they going to... I heard they were turning it into a spa, or somebody was turning it into well, a spa. Well, that was the original plan. That was to be a, an entertainment uh, complex, spa, whatever you want to call it, to anchor the, 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 the lake properties that were going to go... The cottage country that was going to go around the lake. Mm -hmm. So that was going to be sort of their their clubhouse hangout, because it is quite far from, from town. Mm -hmm. um, certainly not a walking distance anyway, probably a five, 10 minute drive to go into town. So, you know, out in cottage country, I guess their vision was with all these upscale cottages around the lakeside that, you know, they'd have sort of this recreation hall or club or spa place that, that would anchor the entire uh, area as sort of their own place. It's just included in the purchase Mm -hmm. And that's part of the uh, the upkeep, sort of like uh, cottage condos or whatever you want to call it. Sort of like condos have like a gym or a pool that everyone shares. Well, they'd probably they'd have this facility that they'd all share. That was kind of the vision in a nutshell. But the whole thing blew up. Like the whole the whole thing never happened. They've never. I've I've talked to people at the Morn Heights Town Hall, the town engineer, and all this stuff, and they've. They've passed, they've had town council meetings with these, with these issues brought up of, of everything that was put up for approval for all the development that these people wanted to do. And they've all been approved for, you know, at least the initial stages of, of what they were, you know, to start at a certain end of the lake and, yeah. you know, this much, uh, the, these many lots, all the, all sort of the parcel, the, the land parcels were all approved and so on, but they, they've never gone there and actually done anything yet. Like they've never... As I say in episode one, they've they've not cut a branch yet. You know, they've not dug one, they've not stuck a shovel into the ground yet. And it's been so long that I don't think it's ever going to happen. I don't, the whole plan, I don't think they pre-sold any uh, of the cottages. I just think the whole thing imploded and now they're just left with 240 acres 
and uh, and this studio building and four acres it sits on. There's two two parcels. There's, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's the whole yeah, lake the big forest. Yeah, and then and then the the studio the uh, studio property is a parcel in itself, right. and and I think they're just stuck. Like they, I don't know. They either have to sell it or they're because I don't think they're going to develop it. I just don't at this point. I just don't think they can. It's too far gone. Um, so well, yeah. I don't know what they're going to do. They would have to essentially rip that building down because it's so far gone. You can see mold. It's just rotten, and and, and to f- the fact that. Whatever ideas they had, but what you're saying is, I think, and maybe, and it possibly could be, or what your theory is, but I think the whole idea of following that trail would be fascinating, because the whole idea that you've essentially uncovered something, but there's that story goes way deeper into, into just the fact that it was a popular place to record, and kind of our landmark in Canadian music industry history but there's some dark thing happening there. I don't know what it is, but one can only speculate, right? Like, Well, it's weird. I find it odd that they let it go. I think they had initial plans. Like that's why it's gutted now because I think they went in there and they literally were all gung ho to start. So they, they went in and just got rid of all the, you know, the non load bearing walls that were dividing the place up into different office modules and so on. And they just tore all of that out. They threw it in a big heap in the soundstage room and it was just demolition mode, right? Just sort of like you see on any of those, shows like love it or list it or the property guys or flip this house you know they just went in with sledgehammers and did all the demolition part and that's fun and easy (laughs) but after that then the next phase is of course starting to re refashion you know where the new walls are going to be and and you have to put the ceilings back and you have to redo the walls and and you know mud it and paint it and of course that doesn't even get anywhere near all of the electrical plumbing and, and sewage sure. and all that stuff you have to put in for whatever layout. So they kind of just went, you know, they only, whatever they were going to do to the building, the demolition part, I'd say would probably be the first 3% of tasks completed. Yeah. And that's it. The final 97% of the work and plans have never even been achieved. So they just left it sitting like that. Yeah. The confusing yeah. part is why build a clubhouse when you got no places around it to make your clubhouse a clubhouse? If you catch what I'm saying, don't you think for a second that they would start building cottages to have people move in? And then, I mean, this is just me. Like, I don't know how these things work, but I have a pretty good idea that wouldn't you have to have a neighborhood for people to drop into your clubhouse? So wouldn't the first right. point of task be to actually start building places or selling places? Well, it was going to start as the spa, which I think was going to just rest on its own as, as a sort of this uh, retreat of, of this luxury place yeah. where you'll be pampered and by the lake and all of this. I think that was going to be the initial phase one. And then from there, they could jump into selling the upscale cottage lots around the place and and of course you know this this spa would be of course the anchor spot of the whole neighbor new neighborhood the cottage country and yeah. and but i think the spa was going to be and spas were sort of you know i've talked to a lot of people um in Morin heights and people have conversed with me both on the phone and in email and they just laughed the idea the guys just seemingly didn't seem to understand the market yeah they're like no one you know if, aside from the ski the, uh, tourism that that Morin heights brings in because they have you know three or yeah. four or five beautiful big ski hills there it is ski country but in order to attract people to come out into the woods and and go into this luxurious upscale spa 
it, it just got laughed away. Everyone just said they just didn't know this town. They said no one's going to be, no one's interested in going out there to a spa. This isn't really spa country. <laughs> you know, we don't, we're, we're sort of semi-rural Canadians living in sort of a, a cold Laurentian mountain wilderness. Yeah. We're not into being pampered with hot rocks on our back and all this. Like, it's just the market's not there. And he said, no one's going to travel out here with sure. all of the spas in Montreal that have been long established and they're right downtown and they're parts of much bigger complexes that are much more centered to, to rich and upscale people and business people that want to pamper themselves like that. That's all in Montreal. They don't need it, you know, an hour and a half away outside of Montreal and we're in this little town that's maybe at best, you know, 10,000, 15,000 people. Yeah. Um, it was just the whole thing, the vision just didn't work. Yeah. And, uh, that's probably why they only got, like I say, path to the demolition. That's it. That they had nowhere else to go. Who would you talk to to get that 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 angle of the story? I mean, there's obviously you you spoke to the, the developer. Well, the town or, engineer. I, I don't know if that's the right term for him, but the, the guy in charge of all the zoning and and the property licenses and parcels, uh, you know, the surveying and all that stuff. I've talked to that guy. Right, he's right. in charge of that at Morin Heights Town Hall. He was a wealth of information on what the whole backstory was, as far as what the partners were trying to sell the town, right, right. to get approved. Um, Andre Perry was also knew a lot of, of this and, and, you know, and, and he, he's, he sort of entrusted me with a lot of this to be private conversation. So I can, I can't get too detailed, sure. but he, I can tell you that in the background, he, he was, uh, he was being approached by these people to sort of be a, I wouldn't say come on the board of directors with, with this venture, but to be an advisor to sort of, they wanted to keep him in the loop because for some strange reason if you can believe this 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 upscale spa was supposed to be recording studio themed (laughs) and oh yeah they wanted to keep the gold and platinum records all over the walls um because those were still with the building even when they got it specter and audiogram let that let that go with the building um so they had all of andre's gold and platinum records um, and, and they wanted to sort of make it a music th- recording studio themed luxury spa, if you can imagine that. Um, and they wanted Andre's name on it in a way <laughs> like they wanted it. That's why they called it uh, Le Studio Spa and and what was it? Estate. Le Studio Spa. Something like that. Yeah they, yeah, they they had the name going, which is Andre's name and trademark, right? That's right. his... He had that, uh, that's a registered business name he owns and held, um, or at least Spectre and Audiogram. I don't know if it actually transferred ownership, but that, that logo is definitely his, uh, a symbol that he claims is his uh, trademark logo that's his and his alone. But mm-hmm. in the end, you know, he, they tried, he, he described many like, like actual meetings and, and, and dinners with the partners. Right. It, yeah. it, and again, I don't want to get too far into it because he's, but he told me the entire conversations, how everything went down, how, I don't know what I'll use a pleasant word, how slimy they were. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. He, he, they just weren't impressive at all. He, he could see the failure coming. He didn't want to put his name on it, get involved. I mean, Andre, Andre is a very intelligent man with a lot of experience. And these were all just young bucks. You know, Andre would have been at that time in his, uh, 
late fifties or early sixties. And, and these were all like, you know, 30 something, you know, entourage type guys, yeah. Uh, yeah. from different countries and so on, uh, all, you know, king of the walk and everything. And it just, he didn't like the whole air of the whole thing. So he just didn't, he didn't get involved. Right. So, yeah. I think somebody commented on, on one of the videos saying that they were in there and looking at the place and came out and Andre was there in the driveway. And That's an interesting anecdote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Saying like, as they, I don't know how true it is. Obviously it's coming off a YouTube it, comment, but saying yeah. that, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I believe it. Was it was a little far fetched. It sounded a little fantastic. I couldn't imagine be just happening to be there. And then <laughs> Andre Perry pulls up at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> So we're calling bullshit commenter, whatever guy. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> and uh, it's it just, it's pretty, it's pretty far-fetched. You know, stranger things have happened to me. I've bumped into, I've, I've bumped into Michael Jackson in Las Vegas before physically. Wow. So really? Sometimes, sometimes life takes you on weird paths um, where you, you, you wouldn't expect it. I want to hear that Michael Jackson story. It's pretty quick. I was in the, uh, under Caesar's palace in the forum shop mall, which is Michael Jackson's favorite mall, which yeah. contains his favorite store. It's the store at the very end of the mall that sells all the crazy expensive trinkets yep. like golden elephants and porcelain, you know, statues and all this crazy stuff. Um, and he happened to be going there to shop. So I'm walking down the mall and I walk past this side door that, you know, one of those janitorial doors that go down one of those secret hallways. They're in every shopping mall. You yeah. see them here and there. Just one of those staff doors well, out of the staff door, as I pass by it, comes comes Michael Jackson and two security guards. And he just literally comes out and boom. Now he's walking alongside me, and we sort of bump elbows, and the security guards are walking behind us. So it's just like me and Michael. <laughs> now, that only lasted approximately 15 to 20 seconds because then he started getting spotted. And I was in this weird, you know, I was looking. I'm like, okay, I'm in Las Vegas. That's one of those... You know, that's, yeah, that's one be. of those impersonators or, sure. you know, something, but I'm thinking, no, I'm, I'm in this mall that, uh, cause I took a few glances. I'm like, I'm like, fuck, that's him. <laughs> <laughs> there's no, there's no question. Cause I looked a little longer the second time, the first couple were glances, but then I, and then that's when the screamy type people and within, I'd say 30 seconds, it was sort of pandemonium. And there yeah. was a large group of probably 50 people all around us. And then. People are doing selfies and snapping pictures, and I took I took out my camera and took a picture. I was getting pushed back quite a bit because yeah. I wasn't as enthusiastic as some of these other people. Okay. And then that sort of lasted a couple minutes, and then he went down and into that store, and they they closed the front of the big glass doors. Yeah. And he had the store to sort of himself and whatever other shoppers were in there trapped. Yeah. And then this big mob of a few hundred people formed, pressed up against the glass, and I, I just continued shop. shopping. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I had my bit, so. That's amazing. I love that. I love that. So that's kind of, that would be the Andre Perry thing for me, which would be just as exciting if he sort of pulled up while we were on site visiting. Yeah. That would be just as uh, exciting to me. Oh, um, he is. He's Canadian you know, royalty. Absolutely. He's definitely uh, absolutely and and of course we'd be in the boonies so he wouldn't get mobbed we would just be him and me so that's true uh, but you, <laughs> the, it's a choice um uh demographic of andre perry fans you know you know <laughs> you know oh yeah and and uh in doing all this with the channel and everything i know is like i've said before is very rush centric because of my roots with mm -hmm. you know coming into 
appreciating the studio with all the rush albums that were done there. Yeah. And, and in, in the end, you know, meeting on the phone, at least talking with Andre Perry so extensively that I ended up understanding. And this is a thing he expresses a lot is that it, it, it you know, yes, it wasn't all about rush, but it was, the place was mostly, and I, I, I don't get ever get a chance in my documentaries to really mention this as much, but the Quebec, the Francophone, um, music industry leaned on the studio and, and he leaned back, you know, that was at a symbiotic relationship that was huge Yeah, that, that he finds that I'm discounting quite a bit. I'm not bringing that part up. And I, I have to always apologize to him that, you know, Andre, I don't, I'm coming at this from a rush angle because that's what I know. That's all I can, you sure. know, and, and the, the great interest in the studio is going to come from the rush angle because we're all crazy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and because of the wealth of work that rush did do there, um, that's why it's going to be rush centric because I'm rush centric about it. And, and most of the people that are going to be interested and watch it and follow it, and want to do Kickstarters for it and want to go out and peek through the windows or break in and take pictures and walk around. You know, those are all Rush fans. They're not Sting fans, right? Yeah. They're not sure. Keith Richards fans. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. and as far as the Quebec, the Francophone music industry that was so big and, and supported by La Studio and, and so many hundreds of them worked worked out of there... I just don't know about any of that. I'd love for him to tell the story. Believe me, I've begged for him to come on the channel and do an interview like this, yeah. like a pod style type. Um, hell, I was even willing to fly up and do it in his living room or at a, at a diner. You know, we'll set up a double sh camera shoot and just talk. Yeah. I didn't care. But, you know, I had to give him, it's his decision and he's not, uh, he's not really ready to do it. He's, he wants to see more of where this goes. And, and quite frankly, the studio in a nutshell for, for Andre still kind of hurts, right? The, mm -hmm. the, the fate that it's had and the way that it was just sort of shit upon yeah. um, and left to rot, right? It's, it's, it's not very respectful to the property and, and, you know, it's, I know it's not his responsibility anymore and it's, it's onto these owners, but they could have done something. They could have either left it alone or kept it at least powered right yeah it's not even hooked to power it's disconnected from the there's no meters running there's no heat in the winter mm -hmm. all the pipes in there they're not packs like they are built into homes today they're all copper so any uh, i highly doubt the building was drained i mean we've he's talked about i've talked about this with like they just they wouldn't have been flushed with flushed out with antifreeze or anything so the copper pipes have probably all burst from being frozen each winter and you know, the septic tank, any of the sewage and so on would have gone totally solid by now. It's just unusable. Mm -hmm. no there might heat. be rush poop in there. We don't know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> rush, rush poop still in the, in the, maybe it was just goes out and floats in the lake. I don't know, but, uh, yeah, yeah. but uh, you know, all the different systems that would be required to keep that building, uh, uh operational have just been disconnected and abandoned the, you know, so yeah. it's fallen victim to break-ins and squatters and animals. And there's pigeon, there's lots of pigeon shit in there and there's probably raccoons that have gotten in and, you know, but the worst of all is of course people, because people, the ones that have had the destructivity in mind have gone in and, 
yeah. and done some things. Nothing major. Like, I guess it could have been worse. I've, I was surprised that none of the great, big, beautiful windows on the back, or really any of the windows until the one you mentioned on the front office, I haven't seen any glass broken, which always I was impressed with. At least people had the wherewithal, especially if they were kids, sure. to not start throwing bricks. Because you could have a field day out there wanting to hurt the building's glass. Because yeah. there's no one around that's going to catch you or hear you. Yeah, That's the thing about yeah. it. It's so secluded. It's like this cabin in the woods. The nearest property is Andre's old house, like I say, about half a kilometer, three quarters of a kilometer down the road. Sure. And if you're over there smashing and bashing, drinking or partying, no one's going to hear you. So Yeah. It's a shame. It's a real big shame. I, I wish, you know, I would imagine that if somebody came with, I'm going to throw a number, like $800,000, you could at least get the four acres of the recording studio with um, and maybe salvage something out of it. But I bet if you went with cash in hand to these owners, they would probably let it go. Otherwise, they're ridiculously stupid and bad businessmen, and eventually it will get put on that that auction block. Well, let's let's talk about the money because that's an interesting topic. Um, the in the cut sheets going back, and I, I revealed this is it was up for sale for six hundred fifty thousand uh, U.S. dollars at the time. Yeah. Okay. And at that time, it was a heated, powered, running water, working sewer building that the staff had just left, and, and there was still platinum and gold records on the walls. And, and you could see all those pictures of the, the way the rooms looked, because all those pictures I stole from the real estate site that, yeah. that I found that's still very well hidden on the internet, but it's there from back when the listing was live. And lucky for me, that realtor still hadn't deleted it yet. And you can still go to that site. I think I even have it linked in under episode one in the in the info section. But nonetheless, that's sort of where it started. Now, after the, it was a long, hard sell, as I mentioned in episode one, to actually sell and move that building. And I think at the, by the end, they were having to pawn off the equipment to keep the taxes paid and the lights on and so on, because, you know, no one was coming to work there. So yeah. there was some differences in the pictures from the first time it was listed to the cut sheets near the end where the price was slightly reduced. You can see the SSL console was totally raided. All the channel strips were removed. Yeah. Yeah, there was no other equipment in there and it was starting to look a little barren. So by the time it was purchased, I bet, and let's just be really conservative here, that they probably got it, and I think I said this in episode one, at least it's written on the screen somewhere, I may not have verbally said it, but I bet you they accepted an offer of about 550000 From 650000 working building with all of the equipment and all the furniture down to this one where all the, the equipment's, you know, pillaged and, yeah. you know, pawned off, you know, I'd say $550,000. let us say it's just for fun, $600,000. let us let us just keep it sure. there. Okay, that's what, eight, eight, nine, ten years ago. Now, the problem is it's been, they went in and demolished it, okay? Yeah. Um, and tore it all up. So, okay, the day, the, the day or week or month after they did that phase and blew out all the walls and, 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 uh, paint and and wallpaper and and bathrooms and toilets because they blew out you know a lot of stuff tore the studio all to pieces took all the uh the the planks down all the acoustic planks down off the wall and you know everything's just exposed ceilings with insulation you can see up to the roof rafters and all the exposed hvac pipes and blah 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 okay Right then, they took if they got it for six hundred thousand. Now it immediately just dropped down to like four hundred fifty, five hundred thousand in just condition, right? It's just land because at this point. 
Well, well, they have to repair what the damage they did because yeah. they took a six hundred thousand dollar building if that's what they got it for, and they beat it all to pieces with sledgehammers. Now yeah. it's a four hundred. They at least took that much value off it from their destruction, right? Yeah. With the plans, of course, to build it back up again, but then they never did, yeah. right? So now, in my mind, when they had ownership, did all the bashing and crashing. They took it down to four hundred fifty thousand, with the hopes to repair it back up into a million dollar building or facility. Sure. But now we're at four hundred fifty thousand, and they never move. They never budge from there. Now you go one year, two year, three year, four year of of slow decay and rotting, break ins, no heat, freezing, cooling, freezing, cooling. Uh, you know, and 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 all of that mold, mildew. The place you know does have that dank, abandoned building smell. Now it's un, it's unavoidable. You could yeah. you could renovate the shit out of that place. It's still going to have this hum, unless you do some real good deodorization. <laughs> yeah, right. It's it's to the point now at what year eight, year nine, year ten that the ceilings are actually falling in from the roof leaking. Yeah. They're collapsing over in the far side area Needs onto the floor down. and making heaps. Yeah, they're making heaps of like gyprock, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's an old moldy, wet gyprock, which turns to like paper mache on the floor. Yeah. And that's just the way it is now. So to me, the building now is probably at best for just the, just the structure because you'd have to break it all down to the just the beams and start over. You've got beams there, uh, beams on a foundation. It's probably a, at best, a two hundred thousand dollar building and property at this point. Um, yeah, that's that's what that's what they should be willing to accept as a bid to close and get rid of it, liquidate it quick. Because every year that they let it go further. I'd say it's ticking down another twenty-five to fifty thousand per year. They just leave it in another five, seven years. It's just going to be worth the lot value because yeah. the building is going to be in a state that nothing can be done with it because it's going to be rotted to the beams. Like yeah. it's going to be just mold and mildew right to the beams. So then it's just something you have to tear down at that yeah. point. And you know what? I think it's already at that point. I really do. I think it's pretty much kind done. Of. It's it's you beyond could, fixing. You could get it to the beams if you kept doing the destruction they're doing and just expose all the beams and just freshly insulate it, new moisture barriers. You can use the beams. Beams, you know, it was a really heartily built building. Andre spared no expense. So you've got everything's all two by twelves and, you know, re it's built like a church, right? So if you get into the walls, the beams are pretty darn good. But yeah. what you're going to have left once you strip it to the beams, it's going to look like a, a barn raising in an Amish village before <laughs> they put the, the siding on. Yeah, it, That's all you're going to have left before you start. But that's what you're buying at this point. That's all that's in that now that's usable. Studio one, like the the actual studio at the end, is still pretty hardy. It's it doesn't have a basement under it, and it's on a good slab and all that. Um, you know, better conditions down there. The original building, the little building part of the building, but the rest of it that was added on was much more commercial quality. Yeah, still well built, but that's the part that's all falling to shit. It's not the studio end, the original yeah. part. It's the the more modern stuff that was added later that's falling to pieces. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a bit of a sad story. I mean, but it's also a thing of all big recording studios are falling so about into not just financial decay, but actual decay for the equipment they have. I've, I've, you know, over the years have been into several different larger studios that are always, oh, that doesn't work. Or they'll have this beautiful S Neve console uh, that half of the channels don't work because they can't afford to get them fixed. And right, it is kind of the, the way things are and... 
but I still think the idea of location recording is an amazing uh, proposition for uh, for anybody who would be interested in coming up with enough cash to allow that place to be a performance space or a place to bring your own. Like, this is my my first initial plan was if we get a bunch of people as a co-op to 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 gather that money together and turn it into essentially a timeshare for musicians and artists recording engineers you can have the space for three weeks a year you know if you put enough people together you can afford to buy the place with three it's just getting everybody together to to come up with that money oh yeah yeah and it's this is one of the things that that uh going back to andre again he's he sort of changed my mind regarding the um, the the actual, I guess, vision of the place originally the way that he had intended it, and 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 part of that being the the whole, you know, what is La Studio? You know, is it a building or is it an entire you know uh, vision? Right. Yeah. And he's gotten me more believing in the way he's explained it to me very well, and I could never say it the way he says it, but when he says it to you and explains it. You, you get it. It's sort of this, this like an Oprah Winfrey light bulb moment, right? Yeah. And, and the way I'd word it is this, what's left there now is just a building, right? Mm-hmm. Now there, yes, there is all this history and don't, don't get me wrong. I was bitten by that bug and the romance of what if, you know, people could record in that room again, but he's ended up, he t- he's turned me around almost at least 180 degrees or sorry, 90 degrees t- towards 180, 180 is all the way around, but, or uh, to a whole opposite direction. But mm-hmm. he's got me sort of halfway there where I'm like, okay, I get it that it's not going to be La Studio ever again, because La Studio was sort of this whole thing of his initial vision, right? The, the retreat in the forest and what made La Studio wasn't even a sound. He, he convinced me of that. He said, look, listen to everything the, does La Studio did it? Did La Studio have a sound? No. no, like it. Like that's why you know moving pictures and permanent waves, semi similar in sound, but not quite the same. But totally different once they get to signals and grace under pressure, and power windows and so on. Um, it it just he was right, right? And especially all the other artists. He said the the sound that La Studio like La Studio to him was, or the way he explained it was, it was like it was like an instrument. And the different people that showed up, not just the artist, but the staff they brought, the engineer, the producer, you know, himself, the different equipment, all that was just tools laying in the room, right? In the closets, the boards there, but it's how they made those sing, you know, it was, that's how every album sounded different because even though it was all the same equipment for all those different artists and so on, they were all sitting in the same room. um, It was all different because of the, ta- it was the talent, right? The, it was a mix of everything coming together to make, you know, what he would say is a magical moment or a magical time. Yeah. And that's, that's gone now, right? Unless all that comes back, it's just a building, right? Um, yeah. So that's part of, if, if, if people are going to think in the scope of, and this goes for the Kickstarter guy and everything, and I'm going to talk to him about this when I get to interview him, but it, the whole part of the vision of if it's going to be a recording studio again, or this facility that's, or any vision of that for the future, then it's the human element that's got to come with it. It's not just going to be a room. It's got to be, and it's not even going to be about gear. It's going to be, who's going to be the producer that sits down there and makes the gear sing. Who's going to be the musical artist to sit in the room and make the performances. The building's not going to do it for you. You know, you can, 
you could take that same gear and go into a church in downtown Montreal and also record your album, right? Mm -hmm. If the building's going to be what it's cracked up to be and be this magical place, um, the history might just have to be left in the past and the future may have to just be carved anew because it's not really the studio anymore. No. And now I kind of understand that now I get the romance, I get the ghosts, I get the history and the spirits that are out there floating in the forest, but it's, I get that, but it's, that's something that I think is more in our heads than anything. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm starting to see that. I still respect the building, respect the legacy, and that's what I'm trying to show in the documentary yeah. and show, and it is a tragedy. It's rotting into the forest floor. That's true. But that's kind of where it ends for me now. Mm-hmm. The future of it, I'm sort of, I'm a little bit on the opposing side of, I'm not just going to say I'm against Richard Baxter and his Kickstarter. I'm not going to say that. Mm-hmm. I'm interested. I'm actually interested in talking to him about what he's actually thinking about because he's got quite a bit of visions in his head that I want to pick his brain. But yeah. Um, to me, if I was even asked to come on and, and, and be part of that, I don't know if I could do it. I just, I don't know if there's a stepping stone from where the building is now to a future, unless it's something really highly managed and it's going to take a whole freaking lot of money. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, and that's maybe why he's asking for the goal of 2.4 million, because I, I mean, I that's think what for what it, he's yeah. thinking of, it's going to be at least that. So, yeah. yeah, I was thinking, um, the analogy or the, I guess the analogy I can come up with is if you bought yourself a 1955 Jaguar and you want to have all the original things in that car, the engine, the tires, the rims, the brake pads, you're never going to put it back together in the way that it originally came off the production line. So you're going to actually have this car that, but the, the positive side is, is it actually might turn into a better car. You might actually have, just by having it as a space with two rooms, tear all that old other stuff off on the far side, tear that down to nothing or make it into a cottage or whatever, but have that original room where you have a control room, you have a performance room, you have a spot for your microphones to plug in. And could you imagine that if you don't actually have to physically buy gear, everybody's gear sits in their car or can travel in their cars. Now driving up to this space for X amount per day, plopping your gear in there, recording for however long you want to, or however long you can afford for, and then leave. And then that way, you know, you never have all you, the only upkeep you really have is vacuuming the floors, cleaning the bathrooms, mowing the grass. Yeah, that's and that's workable because the room, I think, would still sound great. I mean, oh, it yeah. still needs to be repaired. Sure. Um, and and that, you know, the all the wooden planking should go back up. Right. You bet you'll find it in that room. <laughs> Yeah, and get it back to its original acoustical. But I mean, the location's great. It's quiet out there. The room is um, is impressive, um, and of course, it was designed with certain acoustic elements in mind. And all of those things, I think, would still hold true if it was put back to the way it was. And and yeah, uh, yeah. and the control room would still work with gear put in there. The you know, could still close the heavy door and be, you know, reasonably isolated from, as it always was from the room itself. So all that could still physically work. Yeah, it could. And if you think about acoustic designs, that stuff didn't really take off until, until well after that place was built. So I would imagine that someone looked at this and go, I bet you this would look amazing if we X, Y, Z, rather than, I think it would sound better if we just did X, Y, Z. 
Do you know what I'm saying? I think a lot of it was um, large recording studios were all about aesthetics and about how cool it looked. And nobody really thought about how good it sounded until they heard it and went, wow, this sounds really good. Or this sounds really bad. Obviously, it sounded very good. You look at Sound City was a square box, but people love to record drums in that room. Same idea with the studio. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So I think, I think they, obviously, I've never been in the room. I've heard some, uh, actually, r- bands from the 90s who have recorded in there, and it's amazing sounding for the room tone. And uh, as a recording engineer, I would love to be able to have the opportunity to go into the place knowing that it is history. And see, the funny thing is I would look at it as the building, the history. It would be sad, but at the same time, at least you're in, you're walking this floor where all these other people moved around. And But, you know, the other part of me says, in all honesty, that place probably should be ripped down. And if someone were to turn it into a studio is, is probably start from the beginning because they would save more money, unfortunately, building it from new materials, you know? Yeah. It's a bummer, but that's that's kind of the way that's kind of the way I'm looking at it. And um it's funny because I think like now you could you could go out with your band in the car with the gear in the back <laughs> with the um, generator and set up and do some sessions out there in some afternoons. No one would even know you're there <laughs> and get in and out of there in a couple of days, maybe do it over a weekend, sleep in tents in the backyard yeah. and get your album cut there and go home and mix it. You know, it's it, but it's the funny thing is that's because it is owned by someone who, you know, doesn't, you know, didn't give you authorization. You are technically trespassing. Yeah. You know, the little visits to peek in the windows or go inside with cameras, walk around and leave. That's one thing. But if someone was so inclined to actually record and use the room, you could probably do it now. Yeah. You could probably get away with it because. Yeah. You know, it's not being monitored. It's not being watched because no one gives a shit about the place, obviously. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you could probably get away with it, but it is technically trespassing. You'd have to probably call your album trespass or something. <laughs> but you could get away with it. At least a few people would until it gets popular and then they'd end up probably having to s- sit a guard out there again. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, I don't think they even would care about that. But um yeah, you well, could get away with it at least for a couple days. I think we should we should start that because I think you have gear, I have gear, I know a band. We should uh, try and make this into a <laughs> like a whole a whole triple bill where a band gets to record in the studio. I'll record it, you document it, and we'll put this out. And we'll we'll probably well now we're cheating it, but we say we didn't have permission, but we'll actually will have permission. So we'll pretend that we're actually going to get busted or thrown in jail. And we'll make this yeah. amazing sounding like two song record that was recorded at the studio. That would be kind of fun. I, I think that'd be a. Well, you know what? I mean, I could probably still get permission if I just call back. I know the guy who, who got the guy with the key to go with us. He still seems to have the ability to give access to the building and grant permission with a keyed guy because he did it for banger films. That's one of the updates I did on the channel for when Neil Peart was taken out there for an interview on site. Um, I ended up finding out all, all my numbers to the original owning partners were dead and changed and gone, Mm -hmm. which was never a good sign. But this one guy who I thought was not going to be part of the, because he always said, I'm not, I don't own the place. I'm just part, you know, he, he could never really explain it in a way I could understand. He just was involved. His name was on the limited company that held the property right. on the deed in yeah. the town. That's how I found him. Anyway, a banger films went to him, got a guy with a key. So that was just mm-hmm. what last fall. Yeah. So, I mean, in the end, yeah, someone could reach out to that fellow and probably get access 
you know, and be sanctioned to go there for a few days and, and record in the room and leave. I don't think he'd have any, you know, they did, they, they allowed banger to do it. So yeah. well, that, let's do it. <laughs> Kevin, uh, thank you so much for, uh, I think we got to do this again. I mean, whenever there's some sort of update with this recording studio, I do. I think this is an amazing story, and I think you should carry on with the um, the fight to try and get the actual story because you are chasing a story. I mean, you're right in the middle of actually maybe possibly finding out different things. You're in the, you know, and, and that part I think is kind of neat. And we could maybe co-release the podcast, another one, when you actually do episode three, which... I don't know when it's coming out, but I know there's a lot of people with bated breath, like saying, when is this coming out? Well, let me, I can explain that. There, there's an easy explanation. Episode three is uh, the reason it's held back a little. I wanted it out sort of now, right? Yeah. Um, but I, I'm going to wait because I'm going up um, to Montreal this weekend to see Richard Baxter. I'm going to do a face-to-face interview with him, see his recording studio. Um, we're going to do a trip out to the studio with some nice cameras and flashlights this time. <laughs> And we're going to just take some new updated mid-2015 footage to sort of mix with the old footage from three years ago from the old shittier HD camera so I can build episode three a little better than what I was going to do. We're going to take better pictures. This time they won't be in the winter because the last time I was there and took all that footage, you'll notice everything's all snowy and icy. And it made the building look great, looked very haunting and dark and weird and gross, but... You know, it looks very pretty in the summer out there. So I, I, I'm going to just have this other footage that we're going to take to just a posi- do a juxtaposition in mm-hmm. episode three. And of course, episode three is dedicated to the audio end of the building, the last 20% that we didn't cover. And that then I, I hope to have it out probably by the end of the summer, starting into the fall. So okay. that's the plan with that. And then once that, that completes the trilogy, and then to answer to, to what you were just saying before, that's when I'm going to take the channel and I was waiting to do this, of course, in a new direction where I'm going to do go into the interview phase. I want to I want to see if I can get with Paul Northfield. You know, I'm still going to fight to get with Andre Perry. I've got some other people confirmed that are in bands that have recorded there that I won't mention them yet. But there's some pretty well-known Canadian artists that have agreed, at least some members of those bands and people have agreed to go on the mic with me and and uh, and do interviews and then I'm just going to sort of dig for anecdotes. Just t- what was it like your whole experience there, and just let them tell their story. Yeah. Um. And then flesh out, and that's where the channel's going to go after that. So, yeah. You know, we'll see. But that's uh, and yes, the updates. If anything new is going on that I find out, um, there's so many feelers out there now that. Uh, you know, they'll contact me in private messaging on, on YouTube and stuff, and they will tell me if something comes up. It's almost like having, you know, 25 detectives on the ground in Morin Heights. It's uh, <laughs> There's some crazy Rush fans that are yeah. right on the ball that uh, know exactly what's going on at, at pretty any, any given. Some of them go watch the place every two weeks, right? Wow. So, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, there's some eyeballs on that property, but it's not the owners, it's the fans. <laughs> Cool, man. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show and let's have you on again as soon as something happens. And, uh, it was awesome. We'll do it. Yeah, man. That was Kevin of the Le Studio channel. You can check his channel out on YouTube by searching Le Studio and you'll find him there. You can find two of the three episodes that are released now as I, as I'm talking on his channel. 
They're kind of neat. I mean, if you're into that nerdy kind of like history of music and all that stuff, like I am, then you will find it very exciting and interesting to watch. I got to tell you folks, what you need to do is go to Twitter. Follow me on Twitter, at SimonHead666. I only tweet like once every other week, so it's not like uh, you're going to have a bunch of tweety tweet tweets happening from me. Go to Facebook, search out Apolog Podcast, and like that page, and you will be able to get caught up on any new episodes that are coming out. Amazon. I can't stop with the Amazon thing. Please go shop through Amazon. Click through the banner. Bookmark that link and shop there and help help out the show any way you possibly can. Also, my new Patreon campaign is up and live. Uh, Patreon.com slash Apolog. Uh, make a monthly. It can be like 20 cents a month if you want. The show is still free. It'll always be free. But, you know, it costs money to host things now. Now that I am Apolog.ca, I'm actually committed now. I got to come up with $11 a year to pay for this, okay? So do that. I won't take any more of your times up. Uh, I don't even know who's coming up next week. I think it's Ian Blurton. So everybody, thanks so much for tuning into this podcast. So comment, go to iTunes, uh, subscribe there, and that's all I got. Have a good week, guys. We'll see you next week. I'll be here. Bye.